Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning, and I wanted to start out uh, in two ways. Uh, one, if you prayed this week for the team that went to Mason, thank you very much. Uh, that was a good week, a busy week, and I'm exhausted. Uh, but it was a good time, and uh, several have asked me, you know, when you go and you do a vacation Bible school someplace else, uh, we had a couple goals in mind. We had our own goals as a church. One of our goals as a church is to equip and to prepare leaders for further ministry. And that, is, that was our primary goal this past week. Can we train and equip and help our leaders adapt to ministry that goes onto the road, such as in Mason, and be successful, be flexible when things don't go according to plan? And the answer was an astoundingly uh, successful yes uh, to that. We praise the Lord for his faithful, uh, faithfulness to us in the challenges as we uh, met them. Uh, trying to take Vacation Bible School. You see it up here. You saw it a couple weeks ago up here. You saw it throughout the building. Uh, now pack all that up into, into a trailer and haul it across the state. Uh, that's what we did. And the preparation is we want to be able to send teams. Then eventually we have invites to uh, be more cross-cultural. And so we're going to be working towards that and then also international. And so our point is let's take it somewhere close. So if everything falls apart, we're only an hour and a half from home. <laughs> uh, the next time we'll go a little further away and then further away yet. And so that is the idea and will be a, a training ground for missions trips, for equipping our young people, especially, especially up through the college age, uh, to be faithful in ministry around the world. And so that's what we uh, tried to accomplish this past week. And I praise the Lord to report that that, I think, was overwhelmingly done. Uh, we are grateful for, I don't know the exact number. Somebody asked me the exact number of workers that came from here. I don't know. I just know we had a bus full. We had cars showing up uh, there too. And we praise the Lord for each one who was a part of that. And uh, we'll do the, we've got it all written down somewhere. I just haven't uh, followed up with that yet. Uh, one of our other goals was to be a blessing to the church at Mason. And I believe we've accomplished that as well. It was a challenge for them and uh, certainly, when you're a small church and you have challenges that come in, and uh, I think that they encountered some of those challenges along with us seeking to overcome them. Uh, but I praise the Lord that I got a report from Gary Weaver, who's their interim pastor. He's from here. You know him. Uh, he's from here, and he's been there what started out as two weeks. Uh, that was been almost two years ago uh, that he continues to fill in there. And we praise the Lord for his ministry, and we wanted to come alongside as another church and bless the church in Mason, and I believe that that goal was also overwhelmingly accomplished. And so we praise the Lord uh, for that. I received word from Gary uh, saying such and thanking us for the work that went in there. And then finally, we had, and I'm certain that Fellowship Bible Church of Mason had a goal of uh, having kids from the community come, and that did not work out. We did not see very many kids, if we didn't see any kids from Mason come. We hauled our own kids there, and uh, so we put on the VBS for them, and that was a blessing because some of them had missed, because of sicknesses, had missed our VBS here, and so they got to go back through and pick up the pieces that they missed. Uh, but that is a work in progress. When you're a church that is going through the revitalization, your church plants too, and to be reaching out to your neighborhood, uh, that's a difficult challenge. And we did do that. Uh, we were able, we passed out over 100 flyers in the immediate neighborhood, so close that 
we could walk directly there. And we had good conversations with the folks who lived there. And so we're praying the Lord would continue to bless uh, that effort and that Fellowship Bible Church would begin to see a growth from that, an awareness. The community largely didn't know that they were there. We'd be handing out flyers walking down the street, and they'd say, oh, yeah, we know there's a building over there. We didn't know anything was going on. And so that was the first foray into their community where they would begin to uh, reach out to their neighborhood. And we praise the Lord for that opportunity that we were able to help in. And that leads me to my second thing, and that is a reiteration of what Keith said just a moment ago. We have the opportunity to pour into our own community. Uh, I didn't know the numbers uh, that he shared, uh, but a uh, significant number of kids could be uh, encounter, encountering the gospel through BCM Bible clubs in our own community. And so if the Lord is leading you to participate in that, it is a blessed work to work with kids. It's an exhausting work to work with kids, <laughs> but it is a blessed work, and it is often the most fruitful kind of work that we're going to see as far as the number of people who come to Christ. And so if the Lord is leading you in that, please don't let today pass without talking to Keith and Kim. Uh, what a blessing for us to participate in the thousands of students who are just right here. And I appreciated also what he said. These are cross-cultural ministries in a lot of ways. If, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you drive through some of our neighborhoods surrounding us, the demographics are changing in Byron Center. And so there's a lot of kids that you're going to have opportunity to minister to in the school that you would not be able to have opportunity to minister to even in your neighborhood. And so if the Lord is leading you there, please talk uh, to them today. Be engaged and involved in that because it is such a necessary work to be reaching out to our community for the sake of the gospel. And this is the most fertile uh, fields to harvest from. And so let us see if we, uh, how the Lord will open up doors for us to do that. Turn your attention to 1 Thessalonians. And as we do so, we're in 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 4. Someone asked me a week ago, <clears throat> seeing how this is the fourth week we've been in 1 Thessalonians, we're in verse 4. Someone asked me, said, how long do you plan on being in 1 Thessalonians? And I said, how many verses are there? We're going to speed it up just a little bit uh, this morning as we continue in Paul's uh, thankful prayer to the Lord on behalf of the Thessalonians. And I want to start by reading the text, and then we're going to get into the introduction, central idea, and we'll move forward. The, the text says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and to Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. You've often heard, and you've probably heard preachers, and maybe even, and I've said it, and I know uh, pastors here have said it in times past before me, and you've probably heard other preachers say it, if you find the perfect church, please don't join. Because if you do, it's not going to be perfect anymore. Right? We've heard that. I think that that is also, and there's a time and a place for that, but I think that that has also caused us to give ourselves a pass, to not be really who we need to be. Back in the early 2000s, the concept of becoming an Acts church was popular church planting trends. 
And it's dying out because it needed to die out. We don't want to be the immature church of the book of Acts. We want to grow. We want to be more mature than them. We don't want to commit the same sins of the early stages of church growth as the church in Acts did. However, there are lessons we must learn and we must apply. Since local churches are made up of human beings saved by God's grace, no church is perfect. But some churches are closer to the New Testament ideal than others. And there is one early Acts church that I would say that we ought to be imitators of as they are imitators of Christ. And that is why we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. When we think of the church in Jerusalem, we see them doing miraculous events and miraculous programs and things that were happening around them and the apostles. And we say, wow, look at what God is doing. But we also must recognize that this was a church that instead of obeying God said, let us wall off, let us stay in Jerusalem. And so the Lord would bring persecution to come and the church in Thessalonica was a church that was founded largely because the church was growing outside of Jerusalem, had spread out to, to Antioch. Antioch had sent out Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement. Paul and Silas go on the second missionary journey, and now Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica. So we see the church fighting many ways and many times and uh, moving through the earliest season of trying to rein in everything instead of spreading out. And God begins to spread them out, and as he does so, the church goes to the Gentiles and to the Jews of the Dysphoria who were sent out in their own persecution. And so we don't want to be the church of Acts. We want to be the church that follows the Lord faithfully, not having to learn the lessons again that the church in Acts learned. We want to learn by example, and we want to be the ideal church that is what other churches should say of us. Look at their faith. Look at their obedience and praise the Lord for it. The church in Thessalonica was in that category. They were in that category. The reasons, as we will discover this morning, may seem quite different from our human expectations. We have this idea of what church planting and church models ought to look like, but the Thessalonian church is going to tell us by their example and Paul's declaration of it as he praises the Lord, he's going to tell us what a successful, faithful, vibrant local church looks like. And so that is where we are this morning as we look in the evidence of a new church. Paul is going to give us what it looks like to be a faithful, vibrant, resilient body of believers. And Paul praises the Lord for the evidence, that evidence that we just spoke of, of God's work in the lives of believers. And so that is where we start this morning. Let us ask the Lord's blessing in our time in his word. Father, we are thankful that as we turn towards the pages of Scripture that we have an example and a pattern to follow that would be the ideal New Testament church. We certainly know that the church in Thessalonica was not perfect, and they certainly had their uh, struggles, such as, as they watched those who are passing away, wondering when Christ would return. So we praise you that this is a church that's not perfect, but that does provide for us an example of what we should be striving for. It would cause us to be this kind of church, 
not the kind of church that walls off and doesn't obey and is forced by persecution, forced by animosity and disunity within to spread it out. But may we be the church that is found faithful, that our faith would be known in other places as that which is following after you. So Lord, we praise you for the opportunity we have to study as we draw to a close Paul's prayer this morning as he thinks of these believers in Thessalonica. Lord, we praise you for the lessons we have this morning to glean from this text. There's some deep theology here, and we praise you as well that we have the opportunity to be reminded and to be applying this great theology of election as well. Pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that they would be from you, that your name would be glorified as we spend time together in your word, that we'd be transformed, that we would be better imitators of Christ than we came in this morning. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we could spend here. We pray that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of you as we spend time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Paul moves in to verse 4. And we recognize where he has been. Remember last week, last week we studied verse 3, which says, Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has provided some examples of the faith of the Thessalonian believers. But that is not the only reason that Paul has for thankfulness. So he tells us the actions of the believers that have been empowered by the Spirit of God in their lives, but he also now tells us of more work that God has done. And by the time we're done this morning, we're going to see the triunity of God, the trinity of God at work in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. We've recounted for you ministry that has been done this week already and ministry that has been done throughout the summer in kids' ministries. And those are exciting ministries, but those are not done on our own strength. And one of the most acute ways that you can find out your limits in ministry and your own strength is do kids' ministries. They're going to stretch you in ways that you have never been stretched before. And you're going to say, Lord, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And then the next morning... You'll get up and you get on the bus and you'll go do it again. That is what happened this week, and we see that happening in the church in Thessalonica as they are found faithful in ministry and thankful because of the work of God in their lives. Just a few verses into the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we continue as Paul is praising the Lord for the evident testimony of faith in the Thessalonian believers. They've worked outside of their own capacities. The three evidences or the three virtues that we studied last week, faith, love, and hope in that order, different order than 1 Corinthians 13, but in the order of faith, love, and hope, all three of these are evidences of true believers. These three virtues must be named among you and I. It's not optional. These three must be you and I. But we studied that last week. These build to the next reason for Paul's thankfulness. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For a moment, think of Paul's reflection of that. I imagine that for Paul... The quill has been dipped into the ink, it has touched the parchment, and Paul has 
written this, as he comes to this point, I imagine he pauses. I'm not sure that he did that. The text doesn't indicate that. But it it does give pause to me. Consider the enormity of what those words mean. The creator God of the universe. The God who created you and I. We have rebelled against him. But before the foundations of the earth were laid, chose those who would believe. He didn't do so by merit. You had done nothing of value, and you would do nothing of value. In fact, we understand from Isaiah and from the New Testament, Isaiah saying all of your deeds are as filthy rags. We understand from Romans that you were uh, lost, that you were a sinner, and that you deserve death, and therefore there's nothing of value in that pile of works. And you were yet enemies. But while you were yet enemies, Christ died for you, for me. It does not negate, as well as we understand this doctrine of election, it does not negate your responsibility to accept Christ as Savior. You are still responsible for receiving Christ as your Savior. But that is not a work that you can do. That is a response in faith. That is a recognition of what work has already been done and receiving it as a free gift and taking it and opening it. The election of God was evident in these believers in Thessalonica. This weighty doctrine that we have a difficult time understanding was evident in the lives of these believers. Given the theological discussions of our age around this doctrine of election, it is interesting to think and to consider that these believers had only known Christ as Savior for a matter of months. Remember, Paul was in Thessalonica after having been kicked out of Philippi, and he quickly establishes a church. He's there for three Sabbaths, and then he's on to the next place, Berea, down the road. Now, a few months later, he's sitting in Corinth writing a letter to the Thessalonian believers. Imagine the newness of faith in this church. The oldest believer, the one who had the longest tenure as a believer, was only a few months old in the faith. The church is vibrant, it's growing, it's establishing very, very quickly, and this church knows something of election. They already know this doctrine that we debate among theological circles in our world. They'd only known Christ for a few short months, and they already knew that they were chosen of God, and they were already living it out. That's not in their own power, but they already knew. Ephesians, where Randy read for us a moment ago, gives us a more in-depth look at election. That's why I had him read that text this morning for our call to worship. It reminds us that before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were chosen by God if you know Christ as Savior, or if you will come to know Christ as Savior. How does that work with our own responsibility of accepting Christ as Savior? That is where the mystery for you and I lies. How can God choose us and we still have the responsibility to choose to accept the free gift? So while we may not fully understand the work of God's election, we certainly cannot avoid its truth. And why would we? 
Paul is praising the Lord for the work of God's elect, election of those who would be God's elect. Election is reason to praise the Lord. So, beloved, if you know Christ as Savior this morning, don't allow this day to pass without contemplating the deep truths that God chose you while you were yet a sinner. You brought nothing to the table. What a humbling experience for you and I to sit at the feet of our Savior, to contemplate that before the foundations of the earth were laid, it was chosen that Christ would die for you. That that death would be sufficient for you, and it is sufficient for all, but it is effective for those who will believe. As you contemplate those truths, also think of the other side of that. For those who do not know Christ as Savior, the sacrifice is sufficient, but it is not theirs. That does not give them the freedom of responsibility. They're still responsible to follow after the things of the Lord. And so consider the sacrifice being sufficient for them, but the the shaking of the angry little fists, the hand of the face of God who did everything for them. Think of how arrogant. Think of how depraved and recognize that you were no different. The truth that God chose those who would believe in him before the foundations of the earth were laid does not negate our responsibility for faith in Christ alone. It also does not give us reason to celebrate that we offered something to God of value because we did not. It is God who offers all things of value to us. Listen carefully as Warren Wearsby provides an important insight here that ties us back to why Paul is praising the church, or praising the Lord for the church in 1 Thessalonians. He says a local church must be composed, listen carefully, a local church must be composed of elect people. Those who have been saved by the grace of God. One problem today is the presence in the church family of unbelievers whose names may be on the church rolls but are not written down in the Lamb's book of life. Paul has watched church after church after church, those along his first missionary journey and now into his second missionary journey, that were composed of elect believers who had those who were truly known of the Lord, who knew the Lord. He's watched false teachers penetrate into those ministries and cause divisions. And while he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's sitting in a church or surrounded by a church in Corinth that has those in them. So Paul says to the Lord, thank you. For the evidence of the elect in Thessalonica, the believers who are there. And that provides for us this brief look at the evidence of election. The love of God and the elect of God, or the election of God, was evident in the lives of these believers. And that's what he's saying in verse 4. He says, For we know, we have certainty, and that's not the only time he's going to use this idea of certainty. 
Uh, He's going to use it again in the following verses. But for him right now, he's saying, I can look into the church at Thessalonica and I know for certain that there are those who are believers there because they are elect. I can see the testimony. If we are genuinely concerned about being a vibrant church for the Lord, that is at BCBC, we will shed the trappings designed to cater to the world. And instead... We will show evidence of the election of God in the way we demonstrate our faith, love, and hope. It does not mean that we cease reaching out to the world, but it certainly means that we will shed the vestiges of cultural fundamentalism and cultural secularism. And instead, we will be biblicists. We will be those who follow the things of the Lord. So the the question comes up, how can anyone know? Because certainly there are challenges. As uh, you look across the auditorium this morning and you think of other people and many other fellowships in our area that are uh, local churches doing the work of the Lord and or seemingly to do so, and then you look at others who come in and out, and we've had a couple of them this week that I'm going to highlight at the end. A couple of them who are Christians who've come in and made national headlines this past week. But they are not Christians. So how do we know the elect of God? How do we know who's elect and who's not? It is fascinating to me that Paul is confident that the believers in Thessalonica were true believers. There was evidence. We are not called, and I don't believe that's what Paul is leading this to, we're not called to go around and identify who's elect and who's not. Spurgeon even spoke to this issue. He said, I knew who was the elect of God. I would go around lifting up, and they were painted with a yellow stripe down their back. I'd go around lifting up shirt tails to see who had the yellow stripe. That would certainly make evangelism a lot easier, would it not? But that's not how we are to ascertain who follows after the things of the Lord. It's not for us to necessarily know who's elect of God, but we can certainly see evidence of those who are, and that is who we are to imitate. That's Paul's point. That's what Paul is drawing out for us. He says, For I know there is certainty. I am certain, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's certain in God's calling, and he's certain in those who have been responsive to it. God's election was evidence, and it was evidence in multiple ways that Paul now gets into as we recognize the beginning of following an example. Following an example. Paul is going to provide us several examples here. As he does so, we first look into uh, this of the gospel. They're following the example of the gospel, and notice what he says In verse 5, in verse 4, added to that. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So these believers in Thessalonica were following the example of the gospel. The gospel was received by by them in the power of the Holy Spirit and full assurance. Some of your translations may say uh, conviction, full conviction. Others would say certainty, which would probably be the best of those three words for this translation. You know 
And Paul is saying, you know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, or that they, he knows, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full certainty. Full certainty. Their salvation, this is extremely important in our age. The salvation of the Thessalonian believers was not an emotional response. That was uh, driven by the great oratory skills of the Apostle Paul. They were not captivated by his words in such a way that they fell on their faces because of the great talents and ability in which Paul presented the truth. The salvation was not merely an emotional experience as they were swept off their feet by an inspiring message. The Spirit's power was what had done the work. It was evident in them. They had not only heard the word of God, they received it. A great sinner embracing a great Savior always finds a great salvation. When Paul took a look at the saints in Thessalonica, he saw the quality of their life in Christ and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and he saw they really are the people of God, that God had called them, that God had chosen them, and that God had claimed them. My question to you and I is, do others see that in you? Do they look upon you and say, I see the evidence of the election of God in them? That's what Paul testified of the Thessalonians. And it was not because of their own capacities. You can do amazing things within your own finite capacities, but it is finite. When you are stretched beyond what you are capable to do in the flesh, that is where Paul looks, and that is where you and I ought to look in one another. What a an important, great truth that is found here. Paul is saying, you did not fall uh, in obedience because of what I said, or rather the way that I said it, but because the message was God's message and because God was the one at work. It's evident in your life. You cannot manufacture. And they respond at the end of verse 5. They say, Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul is setting them up for verse 6. saying, you know the testimony. And in the same way we look at your testimony, that you were elect of God, you could look at our testimony and know that we are elect of God. The testimony of Paul and Silas will become the example of faith for these believers, and they will imitate it as they, as Paul and Silas, would imitate Christ. And that is where Paul begins to draw out for us some of these evidences. First, they respond to the gospel. Their response to the gospel was not an emotional action that was uh, catastrophic to begin with, cataclysmic in the middle where they would respond in great ambition and then catastrophic on the downside when they came off the spiritual high. You and I perhaps have ridden that kind of wave where we have started out maybe in a low spot and we've gone to some spiritual retreat someplace. Maybe we've gone to a a couple's retreat or a camping experience or a missions trip or something and that was a spiritual high. And we ride that for a while and then pretty soon, wham, we're right back into the valley. 
Paul says the election of God is evident in the lives of the believers at all times, whether it was spiritual high times or spiritually low times. That is beyond their capacity to manufacture. And so he says that they followed the example of the gospel. That is one key evidence. And listen carefully. It is the primary key evidence of someone knowing Christ as Savior. Are they elect of God? Do they proclaim the gospel? Do they articulate the gospel? And do they do so with clarity? Paul says, following that, they follow Christ. Notice in verse 6, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They followed Christ. The impact of God's election was evident even to the casual observer. There was no debating theological acumen. But there was the evidence when you looked at the lives of the believers to say that believer, that person there is following after the things of the Lord and they are a believer. And that was what Paul was doing. He said they're following after the things of Christ. There was an immediate and permanent change in the lives of those in Thessalonica. They went from worshiping the gods of the Greeks and the Roman pantheons to following after Christ in the shadow of Mount Olympus. Do you think that that stood out in Thessalonica? One day they're out celebrating the feasts and the festivals of this pagan god or goddess, and then the next week over to this pagan god or goddess, and then the next week they're over here, and the next week they're over there doing all the activities of the pagans, and suddenly it stops. Do you think that that had an impact? Neighbors saying, what happened to you? You were doing all these things before, and suddenly it's just like the spigot got shut off. What happened to you? This change, though, was not one made out of convenience. Well, I just, just don't want to do this anymore. It's better if I go live this lifestyle. It was not for the sake of convenience, nor was it for the sake of community. That is, that they suddenly found a group of people that they identified with, and so, therefore, we're going to have our little fraternity or sorority over here, and we're just going to have community. It came rather in the midst of suffering. They paid a price for this. Notice as we continue in verse 6, and it gets us into how they received the word. So they were following after the things of Christ. They're imitators, imitating Paul, imitating Silas as they imitated the Lord. And the end of verse 6, For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word, the crowning evidence, as I said a moment ago, of God's election was the way that they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They received it, according to verse 6, at a time of great affliction. Great challenges. They paid a price for following Christ. They were so different, their neighbors noticed. They were so different, their friends noticed. They were so different, their families noticed. They received it in much affliction. In fact, Paul defines this in greater detail. If you turn over to the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, listen at how Paul describes their affliction. 
He says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, even though you're Uh, persecutors are not the same as the persecutors in Jerusalem. You're suffering in the same way as they are. Those in Jerusalem, those who put Jesus to death, who put the prophets to death, those in Thessalonica were experiencing the same kind of persecutions, the same kind of afflictions. It cost them something to follow after Christ. These believers did not demand comfortable Christianity. And yet they flourished. They did not demand comfortable attainments. They did not demand everything be done according to their ways. And yet they flourished. And notice how they flourished. At the very end of verse 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. If I were to ask you, and I know the answer, so I don't have to have a verbal or um, visual response. But if I were to ask you, how many of you love to suffer? None of us would raise our hands. We don't like to suffer. But what is interesting is that these believers could suffer with joy, not because of their own capacities, but because of the Holy Spirit that lived in them. Have you caught already this morning, the trinity of God at work in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. They responded all the way back to verse 3. They, uh, they had the Father at work. It says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have two members of the trinity there. We already have the Spirit of God in verse 5, and again, the Spirit of God in verse 6. And the Spirit of God in verse 6 is uh, having brought the gospel, their full assurance, the full power of the Holy Spirit at the presence of the gospel, and now the Spirit of God is at work in their lives even more, allowing them to have joy in the midst of afflictions because of their salvation. Not that they were taking joy in the afflictions, but in the midst of them. These believers were found faithful in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And being found faithful in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they flourished there. They were not welcome outside of the fellowship of the church, but they flourished in the ministry and uh, power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, notice what happens to them. They become examples. They become examples. Verse 7 says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and to Achaia. This is our testimony of faith. If you were in other places in Macedonia, or if you were in Corinth, which is in Achaia, and you heard 
Maybe you were talking about churches, church planting endeavors, work that was going on. The first name that you would hear about in the list of the first names would be Thessalonica. And not because they were doing great ministry work, great programs, and they were dynamically attracting the lost. Is because of their faith. It's because of their faith. The testimony of the believers in Thessalonica was not because they built a great Christian church or built the biggest Christian church. In fact, what is interesting to me today is if you were to travel in this part of the world today and you were to travel some of these ancient places, there are huge cathedrals that were built hundreds of years after this, a thousand years after Paul is writing. What is fascinating to me is that the church along the way, within those thousand years, had lost its way. It was not about the biggest, best, brightest cathedrals. That's not why you knew of the church in Thessalonica. It was because of their faith. Today we seem to be going in the same direction as we did at that period of time, building the biggest Christian churches, or at least the most people involved in the church. It is not that they had more baptisms in Thessalonica than they did in Corinth or at Philippi or at Berea. It's not that they raised more money than those ministries did. In fact, we know that the Philippians raised more money than the Thessalonians did. They were known throughout, the Thessalonians rather, were known throughout the surrounding country because of their resilient faith which had been tested by persecutions and afflictions. They were known as the faithful ones. And it started out instantly. Remember when we were in Acts 17 to begin this series, Paul and Silas had been staying in the home of Jason, and the crowds, the jealous Jews, had heard about Paul staying there in Jason's house. And when they went to Jason's house, Paul and Silas weren't there. They were out, and they dragged Jason downtown to stand before the magistrates. And they fine him from the very earliest days of the church. In Thessalonica, there is intense persecution against them. And Paul says that they had stood firm. And that they had more than that, they had received and understood and lived in light of the joy of the Holy Spirit. And now they had become examples to all of those in Macedonia and to Achaia. It is interesting because it says this, uh, verse 6, And you become imitators of us and of the Lord. And this idea uh, is an important one. And it is followed up by this idea of being an example. So we have an imitator. We have one who's following an example. And now they have become the example themselves. So an imitator is following after the example. The example, the word for example that we find in verse 7 is where we get our word type from. And you have to be old enough for this illustration. But the idea is, and this is where a typewriter got its name, is you have a little steel key that when you push down on the mechanism that drives it, it smashes into the paper, imprinting the paper just a little bit and leaving type behind. That's what it means to be an example. You're the one striking the paper. And striking the paper, and we know as a typewriter, it takes the ink, penetrates the paper just deep enough to leave the 
the imprint of the type behind it. And the example folds back down into the letters preparing for the next usage. That's what Paul just called the Thessalonian believers. They're the ones that when the example of faith is brought up, the key of the Thessalonian church is pressed and smashing into the paper through the ink, leaving an imprint that, imitator, that imitates the type. That is the image that Paul has just used for us. They would become an example of following Christ in northern Greece, which is Macedonia, the capital city, the, the principal city of northern Greece is Thessalonica. They would be the example to their Judea, as it were. And then they would also be the example to southern Greece, which the principal city in southern Greece was where Paul is at in the moment that he is writing this letter in Corinth. Corinth is the principal city of southern Greece. And Paul is saying, I'm sitting down in Corinth and I'm hearing about you in Thessalonica. When I gather around believers and news penetrates of the faith of believers around the world, the first name that comes to mind is the example, the type of the church at Thessalonica. You had been imitators, and now you are the type. Corinth was also a critical city, and it was the principal city of southern Greece, which is Achaia. But notice that word spreads beyond there. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Word spreads. News of the church in Thessalonica was not only reaching the ears of those in their region, but it was spilling out beyond to the entire Roman world. When the early church looked to the ideal church to imitate as they imitated following Christ, they looked to Thessalonica. They looked to this church. But the news that spread was not the testimony of personal advancement or achievements. It was not prideful. It was not boastful. It was not arrogant in any way. The news that spread was God is at work in the lives of those in Thessalonica. Through afflictions and persecutions, they have demonstrated through the power of God the example to follow. So powerfully was this done that Paul did not find it necessary to tell others of the work of God's work in this church. They already knew. Can you imagine Paul arriving back in uh, Antioch and he's giving his missionary report and he's telling them, I want to report to you all the work that has been done. And, and you may have heard of this little church called Thessalonica. And they're like, oh, we already know. Let, let us tell you about Thessalonica, Paul. I was like, well, I'm the one that was there when they received Christ. Like, I know, but we've heard all about it. We already know. That was the impact of this church on other churches. 
One of the great joys that I have is serving on the boards that I serve on, both in IFCA and BMW, is I have opportunities to interact with missionaries from around the world and pastors from around the country. And one of the things that always stands out to me is how many of them know of the ministry of Byron Center Bible Church. Many of them you have supported in one way or another. They have come through. Missionaries have been here at various times. They've been acquainted with the ministry here. And some of them give me details I didn't know of the history of the church and the ministry that has been done with them. Paul did not find it necessary to tell others of God's work in the church at Thessalonica. Their testimony of how wonderfully God had worked through them went out everywhere without his help. And it has done that for us as a church fellowship. Let us be those who see that perpetuated. Let us not be about all the trappings that would attract mass peoples who don't know the Lord. But let us be those who are elect, faithfully serving the Lord, reaching out to others who have not yet received Christ as Savior, and may we do so boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was what defined the vibrancy of the church in Thessalonica. When you think of a vibrant church in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, in the, the early days of the church in the book of Acts, when you think of that period, there is one church that stands out from the rest. And it's the church at Thessalonica. May their type, may their example be what we imitate as we follow after the things of the Lord. We as a church culture, this is church universal of our day, have been called to be salt and light. But the testimony of the church at large in our world today has become corrupted and eroded by compromise. This week, two stories made headlines and made the church a laughingstock. And the church has embraced both of them as if we had some stake. And I share these only in the sense of saying, let us not be those who are arrogant and boastful. Let us be those who know there's work ahead. Testimony of the church should stand in stark contrast to the world. But instead, we are standing as culturally, we are standing in stark contrast to the church in Thessalonica. The church today laughed, at least members of the church today laughed, embarrassed when a representative from South Carolina attending a prayer breakfast says that she was almost late because her fiancé wanted to engage in premarital sin. The church laughed. I don't know if you know, but the top Christian songs on iTunes today, the top song on the Christian channel on iTunes, was sung by, written by, performed by a drag queen. And the top album on iTunes is as well. The church today has lost its saltiness. The church in Thessalonica did not. 
let us allow those two examples that have come out this week to be that which grieves us, that which drives us to be a salty church, to stand in the same way that the Thessalonican church stood. Let us be found faithful to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of our finite flesh. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that this church did not placate to the whims of cultural secularism or the whims of the religious legalists. Instead, they were those who were biblicists. They followed after the example of Paul and Silas. They imitated, and then they became the examples. Lord, I pray that for us. May we be those who imitate the pattern of those who are faithful followers of yours. And may we then become the examples to others, not because we are those who have it all together, but instead we are those who have our focus in the right place, that your name would be glorified, that you alone would be exalted, and despite what our world says, that we would stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit to present the gospel with clarity and to live out faith, love, and hope with a boldness that demonstrates the evidence of our election. So, Lord, that causes me also to be aware that there may be those in our fellowship this morning that do not yet know you as Savior. I pray that today they would understand the great need of not doing their own work because it is not that which will give them salvation. I pray instead that they would understand their great need of Christ and Him crucified, risen, and coming again that they would be made aware of their sinfulness, that they would confess that before you, and that they would receive Christ as their Savior. And then that they too would be those who, with full conviction, accept uh, the great task that is before them to live out Christ-likeness, not because they're working for their salvation, but because they have received salvation. Lord, we praise you for the assurances and the great hope that we find in this chapter and we will continue to study and we long for that day when Christ would return. But until then, allow us to be those who provide evidence to a lost and dying world and to a believing world that we are those elect of God who are your servants, faithful and true. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that we have learned this morning of the Thessalonian church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen.